1: Hello and welcome back to uh, Indian Religions uh, here on the New Books Network with your host, Dr. Raj Balkron. Today, I have a very special guest. Uh, We will get to hear from Dr. Amir Hussain, uh, who is uh, chair at the Theological Studies Department at Loyola Marymount University. He's also uh, vice president of the American Academy of Religion. Amir, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Raj. It's a delight and a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Now, as they uh, as they say in Calgary, where I did my PhD, this isn't your first rodeo. Uh, in that, you have you have um, done a podcast for the New Books Network previously to uh, showcase your work uh, on Muslims in America. Let's touch on that. We'll also link that podcast in the notes for this one, so folks can take a deep dive into that work if they're interested. But tell us a little bit about that work.
0: Sure. So that was a book that came out about five years ago called Muslims and the Making of America. So, my own backstory in a short version is I grew up in Canada. Did a PhD at the University of Toronto looking at Muslim communities in Toronto. You know, uh, how did Muslims get there? How did they establish organizations? All that kind of stuff. And then uh, moved to Los Angeles, got my first teaching job at Cal State Northridge, you know, part of the California state system. And so you move from looking at Muslims in Canada to Muslims in uh, the U.S., and then in 2005 moved to Loyola Marymount University, which is the Jesuit university here in Los Angeles. So, all that to say, you know, for the last 25 years, my work has been looking at Muslims in America as an academic. You know, you're writing to fellow academics about the the history of American Muslims, the contributions that American Muslims made to America. And for years, you know, I wanted to write a more sort of, you know, popular book. And in a funny way, the the genesis of the book came in 2009, when President Obama had just been elected, had made um, a speech. He did a lot of traveling in his first few months as as president after the January inauguration and uh, had spoke at Cairo University about Islam and Muslims and talked about some of the contributions of American Muslims. I said, hey most Americans probably don't realize, you know, what President Obama is saying, that American Muslims have fought in uh, our wars, have helped build our tallest buildings. Um, You know, the first country to, uh, one of the first countries to recognize uh, America when it was created was uh, Morocco, a Muslim country, you know, all that kind of history. I thought, oh, most Americans probably don't know this. And wanted to write something about that. But then you get pulled in different directions as an academic, you know, you're doing all sorts of other kinds of things there. And then uh, 2016 happens with the election, with at that point, you know, candidate Donald Trump saying, I think Islam hates us. And I'm thinking, oh, I have to sort of turn this around a little bit And my, my work. So long answered your your question. Uh, point my work has really been how is it that american muslims or north american muslims have sort of lived out their islam you know in a setting in which they're one in a minority you know muslims are a small percentage of, of north americans two incredibly internally diverse you know all the kinds of ethnic linguistic religious diversity You know, sunni shia unaffiliate whatever 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 and then having to deal with issues of Western modernity, you know, um, uh, classical Islamic uh, law doesn't look too kindly on homosexuals. What do you do uh, in California, or Toronto, where same-sex marriage is is a perfectly normal valid, you know, kind of thing? How do you negotiate those things? So that was my work. Um, the political situation reality sort of made me turn on its head and say, "Oh, there's a lot of folks who think that American Muslims have contributed nothing to America." Who think that American Muslims are at best uh, uh, trying to overthrow uh, America and American values? That American values are, are distinct from, you know, Islamic uh, culture, and so the the book, Muslims: The Making of America, really was an attempt to say, in a very short, um, not scholarly way, but informed by scholarship. You know, the book is meant for a more general readership to say, you know, here are some of the contributions that American Muslims are made in music, in sports, in culture, in art. Here's some of the way that America has been shaped by its Muslim uh, inhabitants there. So that was really the, the the point of the genesis of the the book.
1: That's well, fascinating and important work. And um, we'll point folks to the podcast where they can do a bit of a deeper dive. But I do want to know, even for my own curiosity's sake, um, is that work that you're continuing in terms of your scholarship currently?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at American Muslims and how American Muslims sort of not just living out their um, American Islam, but in a funny way, you know, starting to starting to become recognized as key figures for the rest of the Muslim world. So I'll give you two very different kinds of examples. So you look at a person. Uh, I'm here in Los Angeles, uh, Sherman Jackson, who teaches at the University of Southern California. Sherman is this phenomenal sort of scholar of Islam in America. He happens to be a African American Muslim. But he's one of those people that people across the Muslim world are looking to as a Muslim leader. And so, this idea, you know, particularly when you come from uh, largely immigrant Muslims in America, have a history that goes back before the slave trade. you know, going back 500 years, uh, at least, but the majority of us are immigrants, the children of immigrants, you know, and you always looked, you know, the country of origin for sort of authenticity and authority. You know, here you've got this American Muslim, who if you look at, you know, the top Muslim thinkers around the world, this American Muslim guy is going to be on that list. So so that that's one, you know, uh, uh, kind of example here. The other example, again, using uh, local stuff here in Los Angeles, you know, when you had both the uh, beginnings of the the Gulf War uh, in Iraq and the sectarian violence that that uh, uh, created between Sunnis and Shias. When you had issues in Egypt between uh, Muslims and cops uh, in Egypt, you had some really powerful moments here of Muslim leaders in Los Angeles. You know, one of the most important Sunni leaders, and one of the most important Shia, which happens to be from Iraq, doing some really good work around the communities here saying, hey, there's nothing inherent in our Islamic tradition that says Sunnis and Shias should be murdering each other as is happening in Iraq. Or in the case of Egypt, you know, uh, that was when uh, Dr. Hassan, uh, uh, Hassan and Maharatub were the two brothers who really created the Islamic Center of Southern California. Uh, and they did this wonderful uh, meeting with Bishop Gerges, who's the, the Coptic bishop at St. Mark's, you know, the Coptic church here. And so that's another example of, oh, here are Muslims in America who are able to affect what's happening in Egypt, who are able to affect what's happening in uh, Iraq. And so, so I'm doing that kind of work. But, but more so, it's become the sort of public understanding of, of religion and, and how do you write things that aren't so much scholarly pieces, I mean, you're still involved in that. So so my, my main academic work right now is the Oxford University Press has asked me to be the uh, general editor of their new multi-volume um, Oxford Encyclopedia of Islam in North America. And so you're collecting together about 125, you know, major length, like 20, 25 page uh, uh, length articles about issues, you know, on Islam in uh, North America. And you're able to do some really great things, uh, including bring in some voices of uh, uh, newer scholars, including bringing in the ideas that are sort of, you know, relevant uh, now, you know, like when I was a graduate student in the 1990s and you're looking at work on Islam there is nothing about you know gender identity in this and Islam or lgbtq and and Islam you know that's a, that's a really huge issue uh, now so i'm doing that kind of scholarly work But so much of it becomes the popular work because, you know, um, and it's different in Canada because there's a, I think, a larger and a more integrated population. You mentioned uh, uh, doing your work in in Calgary and these funny kinds of moments like, you know, if if you told me in 1990 that, you know, there's a Canadian city who's going to elect a brown Ismaili mayor. And one of those choices Calgary. I would say, no way. There's no way Calgary's going to elect a brown and smiley guy. And, of course, they elect Naheed Menji, who's by all accounts a very, very good and very popular uh, mayor there. But, you know, the, the point uh, there being that for a lot of folks, there's a suspicion, a mistrust, a fear of Islam. And so you almost have to do this, this kind of work. And in a funny way, you know, we talk with colleagues, let's say that do Buddhism, you know, we almost have to de-exoticize Buddhism, this idea that students come in thinking Buddhism is cool and Buddhism is Zen and Buddhism is, you know, peaceful. And you think of, you know, Michael Jarrison, who just passed away earlier this year, you know, with his Buddhist warfare book, with the the monk, with the gun on the cover, um, you know, to say, oh, Buddhists have engaged in violence. You know, oh, let's look at Muslims and let's look at the sort of things that Muslims done, some of which is violent, a lot of which is is peaceful. But again, that idea of of how do you connect, not so much in the uh academy, you know, but with a larger population.
1: That intersection is very important. It's actually at the heart of the New Books Network and all of the hundred or so podcasts. The 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 primary and really sole mission of the New Books Network is public education, particularly what is it that academics are working on? What's in these books? Um, yeah, sort of translating them and, and rendering them accessible. Um, and so your, your work very much is in alignment with the podcast. And that's why I was very happy that you agreed to come and have a conversation. Um, because above and beyond being an excellent scholar of a specific niche, you have this very broad view of religion, religion in the public sphere, uh, publishing in in religion um running a, a theological department so there's, there's there's um rich avenue for insight there uh speaking of calgary no please go on no speaking of calgary um i <laughs> i took the scenic route as, as 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 my podcasts tend to um and i took a year off i did my master's halftime for three years at the University of Toronto, I've heard of this this the holy city of Toronto. I did my BA and, and masters there. I took a year off, and then uh, I found this excellent fit in an advisor and, and program in terms of a fantastic scholar of the Puranas, who happened to be at um, at the University of Calgary. She was a student of Anmonius uh, Beth Rollman, and so I uh, <laughs> I approached one RT Dond, who was my undergrad prof uh, at what point, and I said, you know what you you did some of your training at Calgary, I, I really want to go uh, uh, apply to the university of Calgary for this program. Would you write a letter for me? And probably very sort of um, um, uh, protectively, she, 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 she pushed back, but she goes, are you sure you want to go to Calgary? <laughs> you, you really want to leave Toronto where you've been your whole life and go to Calgary? And, um, you know she was intimating sort of some uh, uh, different culture clash sort of there and i said well actually i want to go to this program that's at the university of calgary because i know i have a my spidey set says that's the advisor for me and so so i get off a plane they they graciously decided to, to fly me out to see if i'd like to come to the program get off the plane and i'm, I'm speaking with um one of the cab drivers, you know, much like the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Uber drivers and cab drivers are sagacious. They're just so full of wisdom. And so I said, look, um, uh, he was an African Canadian gentleman. I said, look, level with me. What's it like out here? You know, this is one of my the concerns of one of my advisors. And he laughed at me. He goes, he goes you do realize that our mayor is a brown man. <laughs> I didn't even know. It's hilarious. Um, anyhow. Uh, shortly after entering that program, I got to interact with you in that I submitted my master's thesis for publication at the Journal of the American Academy of Religion. We'll talk about the American Academy of Religion, American Academy of Religion momentarily, but can you tell us about your role there? You were, you were then the editor of that journal. What was that like?
0: Yeah, and so that that was a really lovely experience. And again, we'll say more about the the AAR. You know, it's it's the largest academic group, really, for the study of of religion. And I joined, you know, when I was a graduate student, like like a lot of us do, and worked in a couple of different groups. But then, uh, for a five year uh, term from uh, 2011 to 2015, I was editor. Of their journal, so the journal of the American Academy of Religion is, you know, the flagship journal for the AAR. It's published by Oxford University uh, Press. It goes out, uh, you know, four times a year to the sort of eight thousand members of the AAR and the four thousand libraries institutions that you know get that. Uh, journal, and for me it was a really lovely opportunity in in a couple of different ways. One was just to be able to increase my learning curve. You know, I'm I'm a scholar of Islam, more specifically Islam in North America, but the, the the jar, the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, is the journal of the American Academy of Religion. So there's articles on Hinduism, on Buddhism, on method and theory here on feminist issues in disability studies with Judaism, you know, all those kinds of things. And so my learning curve went through the roof because you're learning about all these different uh, kinds of things there. So that that's one thing. Now, the other thing, we were able to do it here at Loyola Marymount University, uh, which is a, a, you know, really liberal arts, undergraduate teaching focus, we have a master's program, we don't have a PhD program, but it was an amazing opportunity for our students to be able to help with the uh, uh, the work of the journal so for example like like the, the viewing of course had to be done by uh, established scholars that's the nature of a scholarly journal but to be able to find those pieces so I mean thinking about um, your piece you know about the Ramayana, you know we get this in we do sort of a, a first read to say you know is is this sort of acceptable, and you know, most things are, a few things are, yeah, this is really not for, for us. Um, and, and that could be, let me just say one thing about that. That could be for, for different reasons. It could be that this is a real technical article. Like if you'd submitted a piece that really required a third year Sanskrit to be able to understand the sort of uh, philological arguments, We'd say, "Oh, this is a marvelous paper. It's just not right for us. This really belongs in a, you know, maybe even a Sanskrit studies journal, or a, a certainly a Hindu studies journal, where people need to know uh, the the language to be able to appreciate the argument." Um, Or it could be that, you know, yeah, this is much more a a theological kind of argument of, you know, this is a normative prescriptive, here's how we should act in the world, you know, yeah, that's not what we do here, you know, uh, there. But anyway, as long as it passes that, that first test, then we have to look for... The, the experts, the reviewers who can look at this. And so that's where our students are, are great because you're able to say to them, okay, here's this piece that looks at, uh, using yours as an example, at the Romina. Who are the people that work in this? It's also a piece that looks at, at war and warfare. So who are the people that are writing about, you know, war and religion? You're smart students. You come back to me with a list of, you know, five people who are writing about the Romina and five people who are writing about, and then we contact them and ask them to, to do that kind of work. Um, and then, you know, it goes out there for review, the reviewers look at it, it comes back to to us, we get the reviews, and then uh, we need to have, you know, two positive reviews for something to move forward. And then they're blind reviews. And so using, again, using your paper as an example, you have no idea if this is coming, I, mean, I do, because I'm, I'm the one that sort of uh, receives them uh, electronically. But no one else has any idea if you're a master's student, a PhD student, or you're the the top scholar in the field who's published five books in this area. It's really what's what's the piece, uh, you know, there. And, and that blind view, I think, is so important. And then uh, just finishing up with our students, you know, one of the really nice things is when all is said and done, Being able to lay this out for them, because it's so hard to teach people about writing without sort of examples and to say, okay, here's the piece that came in, you know, here's the two reviewer suggestions, you know, here's me as the editor incorporating those reviewer suggestions into a letter saying, yeah, we're going to accept this article, but reviewers want you to make these changes. I'd like you to make these changes, you know, then you get that, you submit that revised version. That then goes for copy editing, then it goes for a final edit, and then it gets published. And so if you look at the thing that you submitted first and the thing that you know was actually published in the journal, 90% of it is probably exactly the same. But that 10% that changed because the reviewers, you know, that kind of thing. But being able to show the students, you know, this is the kind of work that needs to be done. This is the sort of thing that, you know, when you're done your first draft, you're just that, done your first draft. This is not the final version. So, you know, the the, the piece that you submitted to us, as good as it was, hopefully became better in the editing process so that when it was published, it really was a, a much better uh, sort of piece. And so that was a real uh, uh, joy to be able to do that, but, but it's a ton of work. I mean, you're basically publishing a 300 page book, you know, every three months and, you know, it was, there's nothing like, you know, getting the, the issue of, let's say the March, uh, issue that came out in the mail, You've already had the September issue, you know, there in press and you're already working on the December issue. You know, like when you when you write a book, you get to sit back, you get to relax, you get to put your feet up. With this, it was like just all the time and there was always stuff to uh, to do precisely because it, it's the journal of the AAR going out to 8,000 uh, members and 4,000 uh, libraries. So we never had to, you know, with some small journals, you have to worry about um your circulation, you know, how are we going to get this out there? Who's going to buy this? Well, every single member of the AR gets this as part of their membership. So in my case, it wasn't about, uh, you know, trying to increase the circulation. It was really trying to increase the the readership and the quality. This goes back to our first uh, conversation about, uh, you know, public orientation and scholarship that's really more uh, uh, read. You know, uh, I've uh, I've been in people's offices where they had the jar and it was still wrapped in plastic. Like they hadn't even taken the plastic off for a year and looked at it. You know, they just gotten it in the mail, put it on their desk or put it in the bookshelf. You know, for me, it was like, I want you to open the plastic. I want you to look at it. Let's add some pictures. Let's add some art. You know, online, we can do color things. One of the things I was really proud of, and I'll say one thing here and I'll stop. You know, when I interviewed for the uh, the position, I brought in a copy of the journal And on the back, it said, you know, please submit this. So this was this would have been 2009, 2010 that I'm doing this interview, which is important for what I'm going to say next. Uh, The back of the journal said, please submit three paper copies and a disk of your article. I'm like a disk. I haven't used it discs since like 2002. Like, I don't even know if they make them anymore. Like we're still submitting like paper copies that then get mailed out to reviewers. Like how much time and money is that? You know? And at that, at that point, you know uh, a lot of the online journal platforms were, were, uh, ramping up and being in use. So we use, uh, oxygen, use scholar one, which is Thompson, Thompson Reuters sort of software, but that was great to be able to do these kinds of things. And so, but just that, that sense of, you know, how do you bring this into the modern world? And we publish in black and white because it's cheaper, but online, we could be in color. And so I remember the first, um, thing that we did, which had to do with, uh, some things around uh, Korean Buddhist, uh, figures. It's like, Oh, let's put a dozen of them on the website in full color. Where you can look at them, you know, so you don't have to spend two pages describing this uh, um, thing, or, or for that matter, with a, a video, you know, uh, here's this article that looks at this, you know, uh, temple. Well, you don't have to spend three pages describing the temple. You can just, you know, with your cell phone, record a really nice HD quality video that we could then link onto the web page, so people can go to the web page, click on the link, and sort of see the temple, and then read your analysis of it so that that part i think for me was was really uh great and you know you tried to bring in some artwork you tried to bring in some poetry you know not to turn into a poetry journal but what has the pandemic taught us i mean the pandemic has taught us lots of things obviously but you know who do we turn to to make sense of this we turn to artists we turn to poets we turn to painters no one looks at let me read a deep scholarly article to help make sense of this. I say that as someone who's a scholar, you know, we turn to the essayists, we turn to the poets, we turn to the writers, we turn to the artists, you know? And so how do you have uh, uh, some of that in there?
1: Uh, There's so many uh, fascinating threads there. Um, I'll start in no particular order. I mean, as you probably have (laughs) surmised by now, uh, my conversations aren't scripted. They're they're organic. Um, You know, (laughs) when I, finished the PhD, defended in 2015, and the job market was just atrocious. And then there was there were certain shifts in the landscape in America, shall we say, where the vast majority of the jobs are. And I decided to stay in Toronto and find a way to support myself and produce scholarship. Through that process, I went from deeply never having taken an entrepreneurship or business course or marketing course in my life, barely knowing what the, those words meant, frankly. I went... I had this sort of transformation of deeply resenting and and, and being at odds with having to worry about, you know, packaging and presentation and then realizing that, oh my God, it's the difference between whether 10 or 10,000 people can access the actual content because we're human beings. We taste with our eyes first, right? Um, uh, The name of a course that I pitch, just the name can make a difference of a factor of 10, exactly the same content in terms of who will um, be interested or or register. So um, I had no idea that you were so instrumental in that shift with the JAR, but it must be deeply rewarding that you were uh, able to uh, bring it into the 21st century and also um, make it more inviting and and more engaging for folks. Uh, So fantastic. I just want to say a quick note, it was a deeply formative and fulfilling experience for me. Um, actually, I, um, through some fascinating synchronicity, I ended up crossing paths with a professor of defense studies at um, the 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 college for the Canadian Armed Forces, and his job was to literally teach justified force, justified violence. Like he was teaching people when it was okay to pull the trigger or make the call. And I was a, a hopeless pacifist at the time. <laughs> you know, Gandhi was my hero, but through the course of our cross um, pollination, cross pollination, I really came to understand that we do want—we um, do want our police officers to carry uh, uh, weapons. For the most part, we do want pin numbers on our accounts. We do want locks in our doors. We do want recourses for people who transgress, um, and so. Uh I ended up, I was doing a master's on the, the Valmiki Ramayana, fascinated with um, what I now think of as a dharmic double helix as kind of justified force versus utter ahimsa. And I didn't have a word for it then, but, um, but Dr. Dor- Dr. Dorn, Dr. Walter Dorn, he was an expert in just war theory. And so he provided this lens uh, this theoretical model with which I could look at the Valmiki Ramayana and where I live as primary text, So it was clear to me to see where these criteria exist, but they're they're encoded in conversation, in the plot, in the characterization. It's all there, and so um, after the master's was finished, he wanted to publish this. I I never published anything in my life, and I just finished a master's, and so we submitted we submitted it to a journal that on paper might've been an even closer fit for the niche of um, religious ethics. And um, it was rejected. And I thought, okay, well, let's move on. And he's like, nope, let's find another journal. And he's like, let's submit it to the jar. I'm like, are you out of your mind? You're going to submit this to the jar? (laughs) So this double blind peer review probably worked in my favor because it, 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 uh, it, um, it, um, It sort of saves you from the potential prejudice of, well, this guy is a master's student doing a PhD at the University of Calgary. Like, who the heck is he? Let's move on, shall we? We've got serious scholars (laughs) whose work we should look at. So um, it was a really rewarding experience um, because, of course, the feedback is always useful. Of course, you end up with a, a paper that you're more proud of at the end of that process. And it really taught me something that has stayed with me for the last, I don't know, 10, 12 or so articles, chapters. My goal is to aim for the B plus when I'm submitting because they're going to have ways in which to make it an A or an A plus. They're going to have their expertise and their bent. And it may be an A plus for you, but they're always going to have a, a different level. So I'm like, I'm going to aim for that B plus. Because I know they're going to have specific advice on how to fully bake this thing. So it was, it was a really enriching and, and formative experience for me. Um, little did I know I'd have you on a podcast some years later, but here we are.
0: No, I'm, I'm delighted to that. And the other thing I would say to, and, and I would say this all the time to, to, to people who are writing articles, is Show it to other people first, you know, ideally be able to present it, get some feedback first, because the last thing you want is to be working in complete isolation. Send this off to an editor who sends this out to reviewers who say like, have you been working in complete isolation? Did, do you not know about this person or this person or this idea or that idea? And so, you know, at some level, are you able to sort of, you know, share this with folks? So the, For me, the idea has always been, okay, you know, you work in your office, you work where you can to do the kind of stuff. But then you share it with a couple of folks. You get some feedback. You ideally may be able to present it at a conference or something. That's where you get sort of almost like the first level of peer review, and that's when you then rework it. And then you submit it in. And then that's where it goes out and gets the more specific kinds of things. So so absolutely, you know, uh, don't send it. And I I love that analogy that you used of you know B plus. Don't send something in this F word because we got things that were like you know fill in footnote six here or you know add this thing. And I'm like. Come on, you have submitted something to us that isn't even complete or you know, that that kind of thing. Like, like that that's a little bit disrespectful. But, you know, you put what you think is the 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 best work, knowing that, as you said, you'll have, you know, expert reviewers look at it, you'll have good people looking at it. And so like my editing skills, you know, improved tremendously. And I just want to say, say one thing there, and that was that that distinction of, you know, editing people for clarity and accuracy is a very different thing than editing for voice. And I'm thinking now, because I I was doing this work, you know, uh, six years ago, like I I stopped editing the journal in 2015. So I haven't done it for, you know, six years. But you think now about all the conversations on voice and authority and and who speaks for whom and, you know, all all that kind of of work. And I was really proud of the fact that as much as possible, you know, we tried to make that distinction. Okay, here's, clarity. Here's accuracy. Here's grammatically uh, correcting me. Uh, I remember getting something that, you know, was uh, the first sentence literally was a paragraph. It was, I think, 12 lines. I'm like, yeah, that's a really good German sentence. It's five English sentences. You know, let's break this up into five much shorter sentences because in English, it makes much more sense here. But you try as much as possible never to um, affect the author's voice to say, it's still you. Writing this in the way that you write and by by analogies speak, you know, uh, there. And I think that becomes really interesting of how many editors are more on the voice side rather than the, oh, here's, you know, accuracy, clarity, grammatical correctness, you know, that that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. So this this journal, this premier journal in the study of religion, whatever that is, um, this American Academy of Religion. What is the AAR? What's it all about? And 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 what do you do as the VP of it?
0: Sure. So th- th- let me start with the AAR first, and then, then then work back to the um, uh, governance structure there. But the the American Academy of Religion is literally the largest uh, scholarly group uh, for the academic study of religion. It's an international, it it has American in the title, I'll get back to that in a second, Um, but it's an international uh, uh, group. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I I would suspect about 70% of the scholars in it are from the United States. Uh, I think about 10% are from Canada, about 20% are from the, the rest of the world. But the mission statement—it's funny—you could sort of almost recite this from memory. That the mission is to foster excellence in the academic study of religion and enhance the public understanding of religion. You know that had to do with one of the things we were talking about. You know, the the public understanding as opposed to the scholarly kinds of things. There, so it's a scholarly organization started a hundred years ago as the National Association of Bible Instructors. Um, in the 1960s, when you had uh, changes to the teaching of religion in uh, uh, American universities and the growth of religious studies departments, same thing, you know, in, in uh, across North America, where you know many things may have started. Like the University of Toronto started as King's College, an Anglican college to train men and exclusively men, you know, for the Anglican priesthood, you know. 150 years later it's the biggest research university in in Canada completely different kind of thing but in its origins it was like this divinity school you know um, how do you then shift to the 1960s and 70s to the academic study of religion as distinct from preparing men or even uh, uh, at that point you know women for ordination you know that, that kind of thing there so what started as a more narrow organization the national association of bible instructors became the American Academy of Religion. It's sort of famous for a couple of things. You know, one is the annual meeting that happens in November, the sort of largest gathering of scholars this year. We're hoping to have it in person in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, The Journal of the AAR that goes out uh, four times a year. There are regions and so many People, myself included, started not going to the national meeting, but to the regional. You know, growing up in uh, Toronto was the Eastern International Region. And so I think my very first AR meeting was in upstate New York, like Alfred, uh, New York. And then it was years later that you went to uh, my first annual meeting was in um, San Francisco in 1992. And so it's this great opportunity for scholars of religion to connect with each other, You know, I do the study of Islam, and unless you're at a major research university, if you're hired in a position to teach about Islam, you're typically the only person there. You know, so I teach in a theology department that has, you know, 19 full-time faculty members. I'm the only one that works on Islam, you know, and so if I want to have a conversation about Islam, I have to go talk to, you know, Sherman Jackson at USC or Zane Kasim, you know, at uh, uh, Pomona College, you know, um, you have to go somewhere else. And so the AAR can be really valuable because many of us are connected through our, our different um Academic uh, interests. so you're you're involved in the study of Islam, or you're involved in religions in South Asia, or in Hinduism, or in you know gay men's issues, and whatever, whatever, whatever. And so it's a great opportunity to connect with those folks to have those kinds of, of uh, conversations. Um, so that that that's more about the AAR sort of broadly. Um, I got to be a member of it you know as a graduate student and then you get involved um, in the various groups so you know there's there's different um, groups uh, and sections like the study of Islam section, the religion, film, visual culture, you know, th- those kinds of things. You get involved in the leadership of, of those groups, get on a steering committee, become elected as, as the chair, for example, because it, it's it's like anything else. Like me. It's a volunteer-driven organization. You, you're not paid to do any of this. You know, it, it's the, the service to the profession that we that we do there, uh, and then a couple of years uh, uh, ago, um, I ran for a spot on the on the AAR board of directors. So you've got an executive director, and then you've got a, a, a board of directors there who run the organization. And then uh, last year, got elected to the vice presidency. So that's it's a one year sort of uh, slot as vice president, but it's really moving to the presidential line. So this year, I'm vice president, which means I'm. Part of the board of directors, which which I was already as an at large member. You're involved in the program committee, which sort of oversees the uh, the large annual meeting. You're part of the executive committee. You're part of the audit committee that has to do with you know the the finances of, of the organization. But then next year I'll become well technically this this November I'll become the president elect, and then next year I'll become the president. So a lot of organizations do that of rather than sort of bring someone in as a as a president uh, cold. It's like okay, let's come in through a presidential line so for first year you're vice president next year you're president elect third year you're president when you're president you um, the sort of perk that you have at the annual meeting you set the plenary sessions you're able to invite the plenary speakers uh, that you want to have which is not a huge number it's you know four four sessions out of you know the hundreds of sessions uh, that are there there's
1: so so much there Clearly, you also got the administration gene. Um, <laughs> um, the AAR I found to be a, a, a like, well, first, like, like all conferences, there's all kinds of stimulation that it comes with having an immersive environment with folks engaged in certain questions or certain methods. But um, in my case in particular, I found it to be uh, uh, an extremely useful networking tool. Uh, being in the right place at the right time, all of a sudden you're part of this uh, Navaratri research group uh, out of Oslo, or you're um, having lunch with C. Mackenzie Brown, pinching yourself because you know he was writing before you know you were born, or whatever. Um, um, and also, it's really afforded opportunities for anybody, you know, um, with the admin gene to you know to 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 help organize, to help. Um, uh, I think for a while I was the student director for the Pacific Northwest, um, ambassador positions, there, there are all kinds of opportunities for whereby you can help bring people together and raise awareness about the study of religion. Um, which brings me to something I wanted to ask you about in terms of the core mission of the American Academy of Religion. In your view what is being done uh, in terms of raising awareness uh, about the study of religion for the public? Or, or what does that look like, or what could that look like?
0: You yeah, know, that, that, that's a great uh, question. So we've done a number of, of different things, you know, because for the longest time, you know, we were this scholarly organization that consisted of, you know, tenure, tenure track professors who did, you know, very great. And I'm not knocking away the sort of scholarly kind of work. But then the economic and other realities sit in. And so, you know, 30% of our members are are graduate students. You know, you've had exactly that uh, life experience where that old world, and I'm saying 1997 that I had, where, you know, I graduated with a PhD, I was able to get a tenure-line job, I was then able to move into a second, you know, tenure-line job. Those days are, are very, very different now. Like, you know... We're fortunate if we get um, a full time visiting position, you know, or a one year position out of graduate school, forget about a tenure line, you know, kind of thing. And so the rise in contingent faculty, universities figuring out decades ago that, oh, you can pay a lot of people a very little amount of money to teach courses rather than pay you know two or three people you know uh, uh, decent living wage salaries and only have them teach three or four courses uh there and so exactly that with the aar that you know how do you how do you deal with the new reality uh of things where folks aren't in that kind of position so that that, that that's one side of things you're just from within the profession from the outside is all the kinds of things around religion the sort of growth in, when I say different not to be very, very uh, careful here, what I mean by that is, you know, in a North American context in in which, you know, people knew something about Christianity and Judaism, everything else is kind of exotic, you know, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, you know, uh, uh, whatever. And that that's a real difference that, you know, when my family moved to Toronto in 1970, Toronto was like 85% British, like not, not 85% white, 85% British, like the Italian was the exotic other, you know, now Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world, you know, and you see those kinds of, of differences. And so, you know, I, I think now of, of my mentor, and I was so privileged to have, you know, Wilfred Campbell Smith, a great Canadian scholar of religion who had taught it at, at McGill and then Harvard and then retired back to, to Toronto. And I connected with him as a grad student there you know one of his last books um the original title was uh the faith of other men you know and when he revised it in 1999 he said look i have to change the title you know first of all the obvious men like we're not talking about men we're talking about women you know there but other like in, in 1960 in canada hindus were other in 1999 hindus are not the other in canada anymore you know, you have Hindus in parliament, you have Hindu temples that, you know, it, it's that sort of idea. So anyway, where I'm going with this is that how do you deal with that changing reality? And that's where I think the AAR to, to get to your question has been really good. So one of the things that they did a few years ago was just, you know, uh, how do we help with um, educators K through 12? You know, in a lot of places, I, I live in the, the US, uh, I live in Los Angeles, a uh, fourth grade in uh, Los Angeles, California is California history, which includes the California missions. 11th grade, you do world religion. So as part of the California curriculum in grade four and in grade 11, you have to deal with religion. You know, that's part of like, how do you understand the world without understanding religion, politics, culture, you know, that, that kind of thing. So how do we help uh, uh, K-12 teachers with that. You know, the second thing that we did, which we just finished, was what are the sort of general guidelines that any university graduate should know about religion? Understanding, A, that only about 20% of universities have a religion department. You know, most universities don't even have a religion Uh, department. What do you do with someone who's doing an associate's degree here and going on to become a nurse? You know, we all know that, you know, a nurse working in a hospital is going to encounter uh, uh, people of different religions, you know, so how do we get nurses, you know, trained something about religion? What do we do? So that kind of work, I think, becomes really important. Uh, Working with different um, news organizations, provide a, 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 a scholarly base so that when an organization says hey we're interested in in, uh something here about hinduism or something about buddhism or you know what's going on in in burma and why are these buddhists fighting other buddhists you know can you give us someone who can talk about that and i think that goes to the heart of what you do here with this podcast that you know i may write a scholarly article and i may get you know two or three people emailing me about it you know it may be downloaded like you know 30 times in a month and that's like a a, a runaway bestseller in the scholarly article world, you know, if, if I've done something that you know was on a History Channel show or, or something else, I know that that's been rebroadcast because I'll get ten emails, you know, uh, about that. You know, no one emails me three years later about an article. Someone who's seen me on a rerun of a television show is going to send me a, uh, an email there. And so I think exactly that. You know, how do we connect? Because there's, there's this huge hunger, I think, with the public to sort of understand. Uh, religion, you know, I'll say one more thing here and I'll stop. Like I, years ago, I created a, a death and dying uh, a class, you know, basically, you know, uh, world religions and, and uh, it's called death and dying in the world's religions. And what I sort of naively assumed, this is, you know, having taught for 10 years, was that Well, students would sort of think, okay, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I kind of know something about Christianity, but how do Hindus deal with death? How do Buddhists deal with death? How do Muslims deal with death? And what you realize was, oh, Christians don't know how to deal with death. Like no one's given the the Christian students a sense of here's the Christian theological traditions take on what it means to live and die and what the proper burial rituals are and all that kind of stuff. And so it's like, oh, we have to help people understand their own traditions if they have to come from one as much as you know, the traditions of of uh, uh, other religious uh, folks. But anyway, all that to say that I think that that's where the AAR has been doing, a, a I think, a much better job of, of branching out from that very narrow, which, and I don't mean in a negative way, because when it was created, it really was, here's this scholarly organization of scholars and scholars, meant you know, tenured mostly men, mostly white folks who studied mostly Judaism and Christianity, you know, who were writing scholarly articles basically for each other, to how do we speak to, uh, the large society about this.
1: Yeah, there's um, there's a real transformation afoot, or maybe I'm just sort of in it. Uh, yeah, maybe it's just occurring in the circles that I that I connect with. But you know, upon defending the the as I mentioned, the job market was was tricky, and I I just had this uh, inclination that you know what I'm going to do scholarship one way or another if i can i will um if i went to the AAR and someone asked where are you at i may sheepishly mention that i was teaching online you know privately or coaching a uh, real mark of shame in my mindset then in my mindset born of an internalized value system an internalized ideal of of what a proper scholar is versus a failed academic, or versus a ex whatever. I mean, these are myths in the pejorative sense that we we internalize and we 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 take uh, as reality. And it took a couple of years to really shake that and and realize. You know, when the first book came out about Rutledge, I thought I just published a book with Rutledge this isn't holding me back. You know, what's my issue? What's my issue? I am a scholar. I'm producing scholarship. What a, if a professorship ripens and it's a great fit. Fantastic. I would love to have a hand in corrupting the youth <laughs> <laughs> among other things. Um, and if not, I'll continue producing scholarship. And then when COVID hit, all of a sudden, Hey Raj, you know, those online courses you were talking about. <laughs> and so, um, sort of come full circle with that. I wonder, from your perspective of being a very seasoned, um, established scholar, with this wide range of administrative uh, research um, experience. Is this path of mind atypical? Like, what do you see? Like, what do you see for, for, for young folks coming out?
0: no I, I think absolutely I, th- I think your path becomes really the more typical path and my path you know the phd straight into a tenure line position is the atypical one now and and the online world i think you know um before covid hit you know my university used uh, brightspace as its sort of you know platform for uh, online learning up until 2019 my Brightspace page literally was my syllabus. Like all that I, I did everything literally paper. Like I gave my students like paper handouts. I used all sorts of video and stuff in class, but I didn't do anything online. Then COVID hits last six weeks. We have to be online. All of a sudden I have to learn about, I've never taught an online course in my life. And so it's people like you who now become the experts like, Oh, you want to learn about online teaching? I've been doing this for a while. Here's what you need to do. Here's this. And, you know, and I can tell you horror stories of colleagues who did like three hour zoom lectures. And I'm like, wait, you can't like after an hour on zoom, you get tired. You shouldn't be lecturing for three hours in person. Why do you think lecturing for three hours? Do you think anyone's actually going to pay attention to this? Like, you know, and, and how do you rethink the courses and what do you do? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, which is a very different way, which, which can create all sorts of, of really lovely opportunities. So, for example, like with, with my Islam in America class, to be able to say to the students, OK, on the Brightspace page, here's a link to the Library of Congress that has this Omar ibn Said collection of 40 pieces, including the autobiography of Omar ibn Said, the first you know African Muslim slave to write an autobiography in Arabic, translating it. Here's the uh, National uh, Museum of African American uh, History and Culture. Here's their exhibit on Muslim Slaves go take a look at this, um, you know, uh, and write me something about what you found there. You know, that kind of stuff I think becomes so powerful because online I can't send my students to the library of Congress. Cause that's a 2,500 mile plane ride away, but we can go onto the website and look at the materials, do that kind of stuff. So anyway, back to your, your question, I think you represent, I think w- what is going to be happening, uh, here you know how do you make a living for yourself how do you have a scholarly reputation that doesn't require a a tenure tenure track position because that's in the minority now and and the fact that you're able to publish and publish Rutledge is a very respected academic press you know and the idea that yeah it really should be about the work not about this is a person who's got a tenured position at X university. It's no, this is a good work in this area, you know, and the person has the qualifications, you have the uh, ability there, uh, you know, to do that. But then, you know, sort of scrambling to, to make a living, you teach these courses here, you teach those courses here. Can you create your own kinds of courses? Can you reach a much larger audience? And that was apparent to me with the kinds of stuff that you do with the, the podcasts here, because like I said, you know, if I get 30 downloads in a month, you know, uh, of a scholarly article, that's a runaway success. You know, how many thousands of downloads do you get? We get tens of thousands a
1: month for this, for this channel, for that
0: channel. And and so you, that's the thing that you're literally having, you know, tens of thousands of people who are paying attention, who are listening. You know, uh, uh, to what you and the and the people you're you're working with, you know, uh, have to say, and so I think that's a huge kind of thing. You know, in, in the same way, it, it, it's different, but I, I see analogy. It's like writing a textbook. You know, you teach a class of of thirty students or a hundred students or two hundred, you know, whatever your class size is. You write a textbook that's used by a thousand students. You do a podcast that's listened to by ten thousand. You know. Uh, uh, students there and so I think that becomes really important in many ways the the nice thing about this is that it removes some of the artificial uh, uh, gatekeepers you know the downside of this is that you know some of those gatekeepers are important because you know just because you have a million Twitter followers doesn't mean you have anything interesting to say. You, you might well have a million Twitter followers precisely because you're. I'm not saying this is about you, but you know you, you because because of course you say things that are uh, outrageous and obnoxious and whatever, and people you know have a desire uh, uh, for that. But I think precisely that this idea that oh. You can buy yourself with the technology that that you have that doesn't require the CBC recording studio of $100,000 of equipment or that kind of thing um, and the ability now. And I think in a funny way, we couldn't have done the pivot to online teaching that we did in 2020 in 2017 because we just didn't have that technology. To be able to, to do that, you know, the fact that uh, I'm sitting here in my office in Los Angeles, you're sitting there in, in Toronto, you've got, you know, some really nice uh, equipment. I've got like a, you know, $50 headset with a microphone, but that still works pretty well in terms of the sound and what we're able to do and the editing software, all that kind of stuff that you, you can do this. And so I think going back to your, your question, it's really what you're doing. That is going to be more and more what, uh, not, not even going to be. It, it is what what the majority of folks are doing. You know, the majority of, of us teaching in the study of religion are not people like me. You know, with a tenured position. You know, they're people like you who don't have a a, a tenured position. Who may be adjuncting here or a contingent person here or a visitor. Uh, there, or who may not even have you know, an affiliation with a university, but are still able to do the kinds of work that, that needs to get done.
1: Fascinating. Um, I want to be mindful of your time today, but maybe one final, fairly open-ended question. You could take it in a number of directions. And given your particular vantage point um, in terms of academic publishing and teaching, and obviously having come through the pandemic and we're getting there anyways you know what what trends are you noticing like what's really standing out to you in terms of the shifting landscape of academic um, um research teaching publishing like what you know what's emerging in your brain of making sense of, of the shifts
0: so, so so much of it i mean we, we've talked about interdisciplinary things and collaborative things and i think you know again you're you're point that we came to uh, earlier, you know, you doing the thing with Walter Dorn, you know, here's the scholar of the Romina with the scholar of just war theory, you know, having those kinds of things, I think is so, uh, uh important, you know, so, so that kind of, of work, the shift and that, and this has happened for the last couple of decades. So it's not anything new. The shift away from te- texts, sort of as as philological sort of things, to how those texts are lived, how those texts are interpreted, how those texts are are, are read, and you know, and and and. You know this much better than I do because of your your work. But you look at the Ramayana, and you know, have most people in India sat down and read the Valmiki Ramayana? No, they have not. They've seen it on TV. They've seen it on their computer. They've read it in a comic. Like you know, so so how is it how is it being understood and appreciated? You know, in that kind of way, um, that goes to the the whole uh, visual culture. So you know, twenty five years ago, this religion film was a brand new kind of thing, and now. I don't think you can go to an AAR annual meeting without, you know, having visual components to things. My own sense now is, um, uh, music, you know, that's going to be the next kind of, uh, a thing there. And by that, I don't mean like religious music in the sense of like a Bach passion. no knock against that, but, you know, I was just talking with a, uh, a friend about, uh, you have to bring up another Canadian, Bruce Coburn, you know, as a singer-songwriter, you know, who's deeply informed by his own sort of Christianity, and yet his songs are not, you know, Christian songs. They're not hymns. I mean, one day I walk, you might sort of sing in a uh, a church, but you know that 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 sense of religious music, not just being the songs you sing in church for an hour uh, a week, but what are the songs you sing for the other what 167 hours? So the the music you know, they the, the popular, uh, culture, you know, one of the things in the AR that's really taken off in the last couple of years out of religion, film, visual culture has been, uh, the religion video games, the gaming, you know, uh, kind of thing. And, and that world, like i I'm not in that world, but my university, uh, literally I can look down from the bluff where the university is down the hill to like EA sports and, and, um, Google and Facebook and some of those companies. I remember talking with with one of our students about uh, working for a video game company. He says, well, you have to understand, there's more writers than there are engineers. Like, there's only a couple of guys that do the coding. They have a team of writers to write the story. And you look at how religion, you know, is is brought into those kinds of, of things. The the popular culture, the film stuff. You know, the the fact that. Ten years ago, now living in Los Angeles, you know, I got called by a um, a television show who said, "Oh, we're doing you know that this show that's uh, about a police officer, but there's a religious component to it. Would you be willing to be a advisor for us about religion?" Sure, you know, that show was Saving Grace with Holly Hunter, you know, and, and I never would have thought I would have worked on a television show with. Holly Hunter, you know, what's the person who works on Islam going to be doing, you know, on a, on a television show. But, you know, the, the fact that this show had religion sort of as a subtext, you know, became really interesting. So, so that, that kind of thing, I think becomes really, uh, uh, important that the, the popular culture elements of things that religion, and maybe, let me say this and I'll stop, that religion isn't just, you know, the one hour that you're in church or mosque or synagogue or the temple a week. It's, what happens the rest of your time, you know, and how do we account for those sorts of things?
1: Fantastic. I want to thank you very much for making the time to appear on the podcast today. That was fun.
0: Thanks, Raj. It's been a great, uh, real privilege. And thank you for what you do here. I think this is really, really important.
1: Thank you very much. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Amir Hussain, who is the chair of theological studies at Loyola Marymount University and also the vice president of the American Academy of Religion. Uh, Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the role of religion. Take care.